All right, welcome to the conversation. Uh, now we're gonna tell you about how foreign oligarchs might be uh, raising housing prices so that they are unaffordable and destroying Midwestern towns. What do they have to do with us and how would they affect America? Well, good thing we have Casey Michelle on. Uh, he is the American, uh, he's the author of American Kleptocracy, How the US Created the World's Greatest Money Laundering Scheme in History. Well, uh, that's unfortunate, but real. So Casey, welcome. Ah, uh, Jane, great to be here. Thanks so much. No problem. So a lot to get to, uh, let's get started. So I, you know, conventionally, I like a lot of people for a while thought Cayman Islands, Switzerland, these are where you have your money laundering operations and your banks that you know hide them. Well, wealthy people hide their money, basically, right? How did it get to be America that's leading in this category? Yeah, look, I mean, Jake, you're not wrong. I think when a lot of people think of the offshoring economy, financial secrecy, they think of places like Switzerland or Panama or places in the Caribbean and South Pacific. But lo and behold, as we've seen over the past few decades. There's been a transformation so few of us have been paying attention to, and that is that it is now the United States of America. There's actually the world's biggest offshore haven that's actually begun sucking up so much business from these traditional offshore finance havens of yore. There's three primary ways that this happened. This is a process that took place over decades. This didn't happen overnight. There were concerted efforts from legislators, from industries that made this a new reality. The United States of America is not just the world's biggest economy, it's also the world's biggest offshore and financial secrecy haven. There are three primary areas that I write about in the book that allowed that transformation. One, you gotta look at the states, not the federal government itself. It was actually the states that led this, states like Delaware, Wyoming, South Dakota, Nevada, these kind of smaller states that created the financial incentive structure, the kinds of anonymous shell companies, anonymous trusts that attracted the inflows of hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars, and potentially more from, again, oligarchs, autocrats, these despotic regimes around the world into the United States, you got the states themselves leading these developments. You got anti-money laundering loopholes and exemptions, not for American banks. American banks are actually relatively clean in terms of foreign illicit money. But we're talking about things like real estate. We're talking about things like private equity and hedge funds. We're talking about the art market and auction houses, all of which enjoy exemptions from basic anti-money laundering regulations. You got the states and you got these exemptions. And then you got the actual Americans on the ground. Those that we call the enablers that are enabling these illicit financial flows are incentivizing these financial flows and are profiting from it. So these are the real estate agencies, the private equity managers, the accountants and escrow agents and hedge fund managers, as well as maybe most especially lawyers. Because the lawyers are the ones setting up the shell companies, setting up the trusts, skirting around basic anti-money laundering regulations. And then beyond that, you know, intimidating investigative journalists that are looking into these networks and that are lobbying for their kleptocratic clients in Washington and then cloaking all of this behind attorney-client privilege. So you have this whole cast of American professionals that has helped create and entrench this new offshoring reality right here in the United States of America. So Casey, I understand the states, they want to get foreign money into their state. Uh, and a lot of them run by Republicans don't care at all about scruples, morals, uh, illegal activities. And it's a race to the bottom. Oh Yeah, I'll give you more protection than South Dakota does. I get it, right? Uh, the individuals are gonna make money, you're a real estate agent. What do you care if it's an oligarch buying it or, or somebody else buying it? You're gonna make money, so you're incentivized to say yes. I understand that. The part in the middle is the interesting part. The money laundering exceptions for real estate and other parts of the, uh, the economy. How did that happen? Yeah, Jake, that's a great question. Um, you know, part of the book details with 
the broader history of the American anti-money laundering efforts, right? These policies and regulations that prevent so much or try to prevent so much illicit finance coming to the US. We actually have to go back two decades, 2001, 2002, the passage of the Patriot Act of all things. Now, I don't need to tell you in the audience all of these civil liberties violations and concerns from the Patriot Act. There's a part of the Patriot Act that is actually incredibly progressive in terms of anti-money laundering regulations. There's a clear argument to be made that the Patriot Act is actually the single greatest piece of anti-money laundering legislation ever passed in the US because of what it did to the American banking sector. It forced American banks to set up internal anti-money laundering checks. It forced American banks to no longer work with the proceeds of foreign corruption. It had this wonderful slate of policies implemented because of the Patriot Act. Again leaving everything else in the Patriot Act to the side. It also addressed a number of other industries in the US as well. It addressed real estate, it addressed private equity, hedge funds, escrow accounts, a whole range of other industries that have begun seeing by 2001, 2002, this new kind of tidal wave of illicit finance coming to the US. The problem was shortly after the Patriot Act passage, the Bush Treasury Department decided to issue a series of exemptions for not the banking industry itself, but for again, real estate, private investment, hedge funds, escrow agents, art and auction houses, et cetera, et cetera. And they did this, there was a logic to it. They, they issued these exemptions from these new anti-money laundering regulations because they said they wanted to see the effect on these industries. They didn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. And these, these new exemptions, they said, were going to be temporary. And you can kind of see, again, the, the logic of it. They don't want to cut these industries off of the knees. They want to know what the actual impact's going to be. The problem is those temporary exemptions are now two decades old. They're not temporary anymore. They're temporary only in name. These are in effect permanent exemptions. And that have been continued and entrenched by administration after administration. The Obama administration didn't do anything with these exemptions. Certainly the Trump administration didn't do anything with these exemptions. It's only in the last few weeks actually that the Biden administration is finally vocally addressing, I haven't seen it in terms of policy, but in terms of rhetoric, finally beginning to address some of these exemptions themselves, because we know what the result of these exemptions have been. The real estate industry in America, both the uh, 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 residential real estate as well as commercial real estate have ballooned into this go-to source for anonymous wealth, uh, 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 dirty money, illicit finance that allows foreign oligarchs, foreign kleptocrats to cycle so much of their money through and strip any identifying information from other investigators or that other investigators can track, tax authorities can track, regulators can track. We know that this same dynamic has played out in industry after industry after industry right here in the United States of America because of, again, these exemptions that are now 20 years old. So, Casey, there's a lot to unpack there, but um, I feel like uh, real estate's been used for money laundering for a long time, including uh, when Russian oligarchs bought a giant uh, percentage of Trump Tower uh, when he was in massive trouble, and that was, uh, I believe, pre 9 11. So, but for the people at home that don't know how money laundering works, they've got to be asking, why are they buying American real estate? How does that help them? Well, look, there's a couple reasons for that. One, America is still nominally a rule of law jurisdiction. It has still relatively fair courts, a fair judiciary. You're not going to bribe a judge and allow that judge then allow whomever it might be to seize that asset. There are private property protections still in the United States of America. There is a significant legal class, legal professionals that can defend those assets on behalf of whichever kleptocratic client they would like. Again, lawyers have no anti-money laundering, no due diligence requirements whatsoever. We're not talking about representation in court. Everybody's due equal 
uh, has equal due in court. I'm talking about everything else that the lawyers in the U.S. are doing on behalf of kleptocratic clients. But there's, there are all these different reasons that the U.S. has become this preferred jurisdiction for laundering operations, for illicit finance, for the transformation of hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars, if not more, if not trillions of dollars um, uh, of money transformed into licit legitimate assets that are still controlled by those initial kleptocratic oligarchy despotic figures that can still profit from them, that can still skirt sanctions with them, but that cannot actually be tracked back to the initial source, cannot actually be tracked back to those initial kleptocratic figures. I mean, I don't need to tell uh, you know, audiences besides the scope of the real estate industry in and of itself to say nothing of the American private equity or hedge fund industry. I mean, these are massive trillions, trillions of dollars industries that enjoy no due diligence, no money laundering or anti-money laundering requirements whatsoever. There's every reason in the world it would attract all of this illicit finance into the United States of America. And then, oh, by the way, it's no longer just in the Manhattans or the Miamis or the Malibus that we kind of traditionally associate with this wealth. You know, Cenk, as you, as you mentioned right at the beginning of our conversation, these guys are now plowing money, hundreds of millions of dollars, if not more, into the American Midwest, into the Rust Belt, into commercial real estate, into uh, steel plants, manufacturing plants, you name it. Any part of the American real estate sector is almost effectively wide open for as much illicit money to come in uh, as, uh, as they would want. So Casey, let me understand this right. So it could be someone who is part of a drug cartel or somehow got illicit funds in Russia for doing organized crime. It could be any one of those illicit sources, right? And they don't want the money traced back to their drug cartel. So they come in here and they say, hey, I wanna buy a billion dollars worth of real estate. And at the end, whatever that property is, whatever the group is that bought it for them, winds up being legal. And they go, what, 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 I have a shopping mall in Minnesota. I don't know what you're talking about. And so the trick there is for the guy who's arranging that deal, private equity or whoever, to not ask any questions about where the money's coming from, right? That's where the exception to the rule that banks have, where they have to ask, hey, where is this money coming from? Yeah, you're, you're exactly right, Shane. It's the private equity managers, the hedge fund investors, the American lawyers, uh, any uh, you know, the shell company operators, the trust operators, again, in states like Delaware or South Dakota that have perfected the art of the perfect anonymous financial vehicle to again strip any identifying information and then use that financial vehicle, that anonymous financial vehicle to plow hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars into to take just one industry, the American real estate sector, uh, which is again, a, a trillions and trillions of dollars uh, 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 wide yeah. industry in and of itself. I mean, it is incredibly, it is ludicrously easy to launder funds in the United States of America, regardless of the source of income. If you're an oligarch, if you are a narco trafficker, a wildlife poacher, an arms trafficker, a human trafficker, anybody who has any dirty money can come directly to the United States of America, use private equity, use American lawyers who can then use their own attorney client accounts to skirt those basic anti-money laundering regulations. You know, I don't didn't mean to write a book that is a playbook for how these guys can do this. That's really what it is. It is as wide open as anything. Okay, so Casey, real quick as we're running out of time here. So what does that have to do with decimating Midwestern towns, people would ask? Yeah, so that's a great question. You know, when we think of these kleptocratic figures, again, we think of these high net worth individuals, conspicuous consumption, you know, private jets, fleets of supercars, mansions in Malibu. And that's certainly a reality. But one of the things we have seen, and we're only just beginning to learn about, is especially after the 2008 recession. American property is still a 
a wise investment, both for Americans and non-Americans alike. And it should be no surprise that we're now beginning to learn that so many alleged illicit financial networks, Ponzi schemers, again, oligarchs, plutocrats elsewhere, have turned to the American real estate sector to hide and launder their money, but they're no longer doing it in the Manhattans, the Miamis, the Malibus. Now, one figure that I write about, a Ukrainian oligarch, ended up becoming, with nobody being aware of this, the biggest commercial real estate landlord in Cleveland, Ohio. And he also went to all these small towns, these overlooked towns in places like Kentucky, West Virginia, Texas, Illinois, purchased these economic crown jewels of these regions, again, steel plants, manufacturing plants, etc. Promising jobs, promising revitalization, promising reinvestment in these local communities. And as far as anyone can tell, never intending to actually do anything with them. And we've seen the aftermath of that. Again, this is alleged by the Department of Justice, this is alleged by, in this case, Ukrainian regulators. All they did was plow their money in just to keep it safe, just to keep it away from Ukrainian investigators and to never bring those jobs back. And what we've seen on the ground is that these factories, these steel plants are slowly beginning to crumble into nothing. These remaining blue collar jobs are now being wiped out. These American workers are being laid off over and over and over again. And then by the way, these assets, these factories, these plants are effectively frozen. They can't be seized, they can't be turned over to a new owner. These local communities are watching their economic lifeblood dry up. And again, we're only just learning about this phase of American kleptocracy. Say, if, if people do a legitimate investment, they want that investment to pay off. So they would invest more into the factory and ha try to have it flourish so they could profit. But in this case, since the main point of the investment is to wash your money uh, and make it legal, they don't have to bother putting in any new money. They don't really care about the investment. The point is to just launder the money as opposed to build a business. And that's why a lot of them atrophy and because the mission's already accomplished. All right, so last thing, you also mentioned about how they're infiltrating universities and think tanks here. I guess the how is relatively easy. You go to a think tank, you go, hey, I'm gonna give you $10 million. Their answer is gonna be yes. Uh, the question is why? Uh, why are they? Is that a money laundering scheme, or are they uh, buying marketing for themselves? Uh, well, that's a great question, Shake. That is not money laundering in and of itself. It's you, you can't give a donation of ten million dollars in dirty money and they get ten million dollars in clean money out. That is not the element of kleptocracy. That is money laundering. This is kind of an emergent field of study in the broader counter-corruption, anti-kleptocracy space of reputation laundering. This is where these kleptocratic figures take the next step. Now they have built this incredible portfolio of anonymous wealth, much of it transformed from dirty, illicit suspect money into clean, legitimate assets right here in the United States, upending and distorting the broader American economy in and of itself. And now they have more money than they know what to do with it. Now they, they can go to the universities, they can go to the think tanks, they can go to cultural centers, they can go to museums. And now they transform from oligarchs, from kleptocrats, they use these donations to launder their reputations and become tycoons, become businessmen, become philanthropists. I, I, I want to, you know, couch this by saying this is not a foreign phenomenon. This is a kind of a tried and true American model. I think, as I'm sure you've seen, the Sackler family, their donations to a number of American museums are finally being called into question, and we're finally seeing those names being brought down because of Sackler family's role in the opioid crisis. But this is a model that these foreign kleptocratic figures. Are now pursuing. They are bankrolling these significant donations that, again, universities and banks are under no compunction to check the source of incomes whatsoever. And these kleptocratic figures are not only transforming themselves 
into, again, donors and philanthropists. But now they're opening doors for themselves to the kind of who's who of American policymaking, of American cultural tastes. They become moguls, they become backroom dealers. They have access to the elite circles right here in Washington or New York or Los Angeles or Miami or you name it. And none of us are any the wiser. We have no documentation, there's no transparency. And again, this is one of the kind of emergent fields in the anti-corruption counter kleptocracy space. But this is what they've done once they've built this war chest of an anonymous illicit wealth, distorted the American economy, looted the populations back home where they originally come from, using and abusing these wide open anti-money laundering loopholes. And then becoming these titans of industry, these philanthropists that everybody should ogle at, everybody should follow. While, by the way, they're in Washington lobbying for their own interests and pursuing their own um, their own profits at the end of the day. I can't stop asking questions, but again, real quick, uh, the sure. the American political system allows for unlimited campaign donations, <laughs> and so either they could become American citizens or they could use a proxy who's an American citizen. So couldn't they just as well as the the Koch brothers or Sheldon Adelson or George Soros, couldn't they put billions into buying American politicians to get anything they want? Yeah, Chank, absolutely they could. I mean, I don't need to tell you and the listeners just how wide open or how kind of asleep at the wheel FEC has been in terms of election finance monitoring, let alone investigations and sanctions and penalties. We've been talking about how wide open the American economy is. The American political system is increasingly wide open to these inflows of financial funds. I mean, there's every, again, there's every incentive for these figures to plow their money not only to American real estate, private equity, you know, the auction house and art market, but now beyond that, politicians themselves setting up anonymous financial vehicles or even using American colleagues that are only too happy to anonymously cycle that money into American political parties, into American political figures. And this isn't even talking about some figure like, you know, for instance, Donald Trump, a luxury real estate developer who is saturated in anonymous foreign wealth. But we only have a tiny idea about some of the figures who've been bankrolling Trump properties both before, during, and after his presidency. Uh, I, I, I mean, these figures are absolutely feasting on this wide open uh, American landscape, both economically and as we've seen increasingly politically as well. Yeah, this stuff was allowed day in day out by people like Andrew Cuomo, and and so and then golly gee, that people found out that Andrew Cuomo was not a good guy for other reasons when right. he'd been allowing this stuff forever because a lot of the real estate interests and private equity and hedge fund guys are worst top donors. And golly gee, the media could never figure it out, and now all of a sudden they're shocked and chagrined. Super last thing, is it enough in the real estate market? To move prices, like how is our is housing less affordable in America because of of this money laundering schemes by oligarchs? The short answer to that is yes. And again, just look at the incentive structure. There's no reason for these oligarchs, plutocrats, to look for any other industry elsewhere. The American real estate market is wide open. We know they have been targeting not just the luxury side, these mansions and condos, but they've increasingly been targeting real estate, residential real estate, homes and houses, single family units, et cetera, et cetera, as well as apartment buildings, as well as commercial real estate. Absolutely, this has played a role in the increasing housing prices. 
uh, the rising housing costs here in the United States. What that actual fraction is, what that actual percentage is, remains to be seen. This is absolutely a fertile field for researchers, especially in both the civil society and academic space. Hopefully, we'll have a better grasp on what that relationship actually looks like in the coming years. Uh, but no, you're absolutely right. Among other things, among inflation costs, among other, you know, lack of uh, actual housing supply, absolutely. This has played a role in accelerating housing prices because we just don't know. We really don't know at the end of the day how many of these oligarchic figures have plowed how much of their money to how many American cities, towns, regions, states, etc. There is such a rampant amount of anonymity that we still only have a fraction of an idea. And um, we're going to have to wait for firmer answers moving forward. But yes, Frank, the short answer is absolutely yes. All right, Casey Michelle, author of American Kleptocracy. Thank you for joining us and shedding a light on this really important issue that hides in dark corners. Thanks so much, Shank. All right, back on the conversation. Our next guest is trying to give you a race. No, really, he is. You're gonna see how Joe Sandberg joins us. He's business leader, entrepreneur, and anti-poverty advocate. He's one of the original investors in Blue Apron, and he's the co-founder of Aspiration or founder. Joe, welcome back. Thanks for having me. No problem. So, Joe, you're basically initiating an $18 minimum wage ballot measure in California. That actually takes a lot of money to put together. So, why? Why are you doing that? Well, I believe that everyone who works full time should be able to afford life's basic needs. And right now in California, there are almost 10 million people who are working full time who can't afford life's basic needs. As we've discussed many times in the past, if the minimum wage had increased at the rate of productivity since 1960, it would be $24 right now. We're going to make it 18 because we can win 18. It's a compromise as it is. 18 is better than 15. And it will mean a raise of $6,240 per year or $24 per day for five and a half million plus Californians. And that's going to be the difference between a lot of Californians providing three or two meals a day for their kids, being able to make rent, being able to provide fresh clothes during the wintertime for their kids. So it's, it's a big deal. It's not enough, but it's a step in the right direction toward ending poverty in California. Okay, um, we covered this on the show and $6,240 raise is a pretty big deal for people in California. And we explained, hey, it also pushes everybody's wages up and it affects the nation when you California goes to a higher minimum wage. So that people know that. But of course, the question you'll get most often is, but Joe, doesn't it hurt business interests, the poor companies here that you're affecting? When you put more pockets in the money, more money in the pockets of consumers, it's great for business. We have a consumer economy. And when people who need to buy things have more money, then businesses sell more goods and services and have to hire more workers, which increases wages even further. So, you know, you don't need to have a PhD in economics to understand that when your economy is based on consumption and you put more money in the pockets of those who have to buy things, everyone's better off, including businesses. Yeah, Henry Ford came out with that a long time ago. Uh, and yeah. but, but to be fair, between 1938 and 1968, Wages did keep up with productivity. And did America really have a good economy back then? Better than it is now, certainly less, um, less unequal. Since 1968, it's really been a clear trend. Economic growth has been taken by the rich and giant corporations and everyone else is 
enjoyed a shrinking and shrinking piece of the pie. And where that hurts um, people the worst are people who don't come to the table with any wealth and people of color and women in particular are disproportionately earning a minimum wage. And what's really cool about raising the minimum wage is that you're putting more money, especially in the pockets of working women and, and people of color. So look, I, I always give the disclaimer that Aspiration is a sponsor of TYT. But the reason you guys- What's Aspiration? Are, <laughs> uh, the reason why you guys are is because you're actually progressive. And we don't take uh, non-progressive uh, sponsors like you guys. So uh, and and so then it leads me to the question, yes, but are you living by the same mantra? Like for example, what's the minimum wage at Aspiration? At Aspiration, the minimum wage is 25 bucks. Okay, fine. Uh, okay, and I knew that, uh, but, but that's definitely living by it. Um, now, look, uh, in, in all seriousness, uh, the, the right wing is gonna come at you big time on this. Because uh, there's a ballot measure, ballot measures are very expensive. You're financing one side of it. Um, almost all the other companies will finance the other side of it. And one of the things they'll say is, "Oh no, no, we're trying to help the workers, Joe, because you know, if you pass this ballot measure, it's going to cost a lot of jobs. That'll be their number one fear-mongering tactic. So how do you answer that? Well, one of the reasons I'm optimistic we're going to win this is that the counter-argument against the minimum wage is, is old and stale and, and ought to be really discarded into the dustpan of bad ideas. Here's the evidence for that. A statewide minimum wage ballot initiative hasn't lost anywhere in the United States in over 30 years, 14 consecutive minimum wage ballot initiatives have passed around the country in states that are blue, but also states that are purple and red. We don't need to look farther back in time than November of 20, when a $15 minimum wage passed in Florida with almost 62% of the vote. President Biden's campaign team was reluctant to embrace the $15 minimum wage initiative in Florida. And the result was actually that it ran 14 points ahead of Biden in Florida. This is a very popular issue with broad support across the ideological spectrum because this idea that people who work should not live in poverty is actually a pretty uncontroversial idea with the exception of like the most extreme you know, misanthropic people out there. So well, there might be some lobbyists that represent a small number of businesses that have some ulterior motives to stop this. Most small businesses, most entrepreneurs, and most voters are for a higher minimum wage. So there'll be a lot of money spent against it, but I think it's gonna be money that's kind of vaporized. I think we're gonna win. And I think when it's all said and done, it won't be that close of a margin. Yeah, well, it, it isn't in any of the states. So you know, I, I, we push for a higher minimum wage here at TYT. You do it and you back it up with, with you know, actual money to get it on the ballot. That's super important. Obviously, Reverend William Barber is a great champion in the country for higher minimum wage. But we have to do it as ballot measures because we can't get politicians to do it. So I want to come back to in a second. But to give people a sense of how right Joe is about the red states, while Claire McCaskill lost her election, a ballot measure raising the minimum wage in Missouri won by 62% easily, right? In Arkansas, it passed with 68%. So that's why ballot measures are really, really effective. That's why people are worried about them. And so, but in here in California, Joe, Democrats have a super majority. Why do we need ballot measures? <laughs> well, because of money in politics. 
doesn't matter which political party is in power, as long as our political system is based on one dollar, one vote, the people who have the most dollars are gonna have the most number of votes in our political system. And that's just a cold reality. Until we get money out of politics and return ourselves to a place where it's one person, one vote, instead of one dollar, one vote, we're gonna have to take matters into our own hands through things like ballot initiatives. Yeah, my favorite line is from a local progressive candidate, Eric Olson, who said, look, we have super majority. We're not negotiating with the Republicans, we're negotiating with our own donors. Yeah, and, that's right. And that's exactly right. But you're actually putting money into politics to get help to the average American worker, which is very rare. And so it's interesting that even in California, you're having to fight Democratic officials, but if they see it as a ballot measure and they see it's a, it, that it has a very good chance of passing, might they pass it in the legislature anyway? It's possible, but our ballot initiative isn't just about raising the minimum wage to 18 bucks. It's also about encoding to law an automatic cost of living adjustment. We've seen over the last decade, the things we have to buy go up in price, but our wages stagnate. And then we fight for these increases in the minimum wage. But every year, as things become more expensive, the purchasing power of our dollar declines. And so what's unique about the initiative that we're putting on the ballot is that it encodes into law an automatic cost of living adjustment. So once the minimum wage reaches $18 in California, it'll then go up every single year at the rate of um, the increase of cost of living. So. If the legislature and the governor were willing to pass into law an $18 minimum wage with the cost of living adjustment built into it, that'd be great. You know, then I could spend more time with my mom watching sports and, <laughs> and doing other things. Um, if they don't do that, though, we're going to do what needs to be done to ensure that it's on the ballot in November of 22 so that Californians can pass it into law themselves. We really have to fix the overall system here. I mean, this is absurd that you rely on. People like Joe to come in and out of the goodness of their heart, try to push everybody's wages up when the entire system is working against it because of the obvious corruption of campaign contributions and especially from dark money and corporate PACs, etc. And of course, corporations want lower wages. They're not gonna pay politicians to have higher wages. There's something fundamentally wrong with the system. But Joe, I think that some skeptical people might look at this and go, yeah, but Joe, why are you really doing it? Right. So what's pushing you? What's motivating you to actually spend? Again, I keep saying it because it's a considerable sum of money to get a ballot measure on the ballots. And you're not getting anything out of it. Your company's already at 25 anyway, right? So so why? What better way to spend money than to help others? Look, I agree with that, but but not a lot of your fellow wealthy folks in America do. You know, Joe, I maintain that greed is dumb because it it doesn't give you much joy, and and the extra money barely gives you any lift in happiness. I would imagine, but I'm not that wealthy. So, what's your experience with that? Like, it to me, it it seems like they're being inefficient. Like, how could another couple of million dollars help anymore when you're already extremely wealthy? But again, I don't have that experience. So, what's your sense of it? Well, for me, this is personal. I've seen financial turmoil up close. My mom raised me by herself, and we faced a lot of financial uncertainty when I was a kid. We lost our home to foreclosure when I was a teenager. And 
in my mom, I saw a single mom who worked as hard as a mom can work. And even though she worked hard and played by the rules, things didn't work out for her financially. And as a kid, I think that that really pierced this idea that we're taught that we realize is a fantasy, a mythology, that if you work hard in America and play by the rules, you'll be able to be okay. My mom worked hard and she played by the rules and we lost our home to foreclosure. And the experience I, I had doesn't make me special. It puts me in solidarity with so many tens of millions of other people who've had the exact same experience. And so knowing this up close and personal is what motivates me to try and do everything I can to help others and prevent other families from experiencing what my family experienced. And then, you know, to wrap a bow around it, Jenk, I think that I'm optimistic because, well, there are a lot of hard problems in society that we don't know how to solve, diseases that we don't yet know how to cure. Poverty is actually really easy to solve. We know exactly how to solve poverty. We've just lacked the political will to do so. And if I can contribute to that political will during my life, what a great what a great contribution to make. Yeah, absolutely. Look, my dad got a free college education. Otherwise, I'd still be an olive farmer. And so it's personal for me because it it rescued my family. And a free college education actually doesn't cost that much overall in the scope of the of the budget of the United States of America. And I want to give people the same opportunity my dad had and we had. And so hearing your story about your mom, it makes perfect sense. You want to give people like your mom a fair chance. And I can't imagine a better way to spend money. And I wish other people realize the same thing you did. It might be a little bit better country. Thank you, Joe. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me.